like you to look with me at Deuteronomy. Yeah, I said it. Deuteronomy chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. How good? A land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Now that's pretty nice, right? But, the next verse. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses... And live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents, scorpions, and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you out of the flinty rock, brought you water out of the rock, and who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. All right. Well, these are the words of God. Memorializing is a thing people do. Other countries do it. We're not the only uh, country with a with a day like a Memorial Day. Other countries have, you know, similar holidays of remembrance. One question though is why? Why? In fact, it's related to other why questions like about history itself. Why do we go to the trouble to record history? Why do we chronicle everything going way way back? All the way back to Israel, the ancient times, you know, Israel recorded. You read 1 
Kings and Second Kings and First Chronicles and Second Chronicles and Third and Fourth Chronicles. Just kidding. There's no third and fourth. But all those, I mean, that's what it is. It's chronicling. You know, you read them and it's sort of like in the third year, you, you even heard in the year King Uzziah. It's like very specific. Okay. A pinpointed time when things happened. Why do we do that? Why do, why do we need to even record all this? What do we care? All the things that happened. Why do we build monuments? Why erect these statues and symbolic things? Again, goes back to the old times because we read where Samuel built a stone monument after God had delivered them from the Philistines. He raised a stone of help, a.k.a. Ebenezer. He raised it up and he said, this will help us remember. The fact is we do all sorts of things, don't we, that are sort of designed uh, just to help people, to help us and people who come after us to remember things, things we think are important enough that they ought to be remembered. So a lot of ways people do this, going way, way back, artists would paint things uh, so as to sort of make them permanent, they represent some important thing so that people will look at it. Generations later, they'll look at that and they'll say, oh, what's happening here? So it'll sort of evoke the story, help people remember what it was like. And we put that into songs. People sing songs and the lyrics to tell about these things. And the poets help do that too, putting it into words that sound better than just flat prose. And then people remember these events. So we have days, you know, that we set aside. So on this day, we're always going to remember these things. You notice with all those examples, you notice there's a real intentionality. Isn't there? There's a real intentionality to doing these things, to remember these things. In other words, it sort of takes work. It takes some effort to make sure that you do remember. Remembering has to be kind of, you know, an ongoing priority. And this is God's message. God is telling the people this. He's saying it through Moses. But it's, it's God who's saying to them, you've got to remember. You've got to do things that make sure you remember. You could call this, you could title a message like this, remember to remember. Right? Or, you know, don't forget so that you don't forget. Sounds a little bit redundant. But you see, the idea then is you're, you're putting effort in because it won't be your default. You know what's interesting about this passage here? This, it's a warning in it. And the warning is not about bad times ahead. There are passages that sort of warn, right? Is there some of that in the prophets? That warn people, bad times are coming? Yeah, there's plenty of that. That's not what this is. This is not a warning about bad times ahead. In point of fact, the bad times were behind them. Right? The bad times were in their past, as far as these people. The people receiving this word are being told that Yahweh, their God, the Lord, their God, Lord in all caps, that Yahweh, their God, had brought them through a lot of bad times. Because getting chased down so as to be slaughtered and barely making it, from, from that, only to be out in the middle of nowhere and not sure if you'll starve and not sure if there'll be water you can drink and not sure if you'll get ambushed and killed again. 
all of these things, all these pressures, all these problems of having no place to go, being basically nomadic refugees, those are bad times. A lot of bad times. I mean, scary times. But that's behind them. I mean, this is this this is the part where they're saying, here come the good times. They're just about to finally get there. Moses won't get to do it. He won't get to go in with them and enjoy it. But he's telling them what's ahead, right? And when he describes it, there's all that stuff he described about the brooks and the everything they will grow. And it sounds like a dream. It sounds like they're going into real paradise, which they sort of are, especially compared to all the all the lousy stuff they've been through. Now they get to go into this land, and it's going to be great. So. Why? Why then the stern warning when we got the good days ahead? You might think, well, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. Moses is preparing them, God speaking through Moses, preparing them for this sort of long-awaited reward. They're about to enter into, they're going to enter into their salad days. And it's going to be, it's going to be good times. Why? A warning. Well, it is explained pretty clearly. So, again, verse 12. Here is the crux of it, the warning. When you eat, he says, when you eat and are satisfied, and you build your fine houses, and your herds and flocks grow, and you get rich, what comes next? What comes after that? He says, Here's the warning part. Then your heart will become proud and you will forget Yahweh, your God, who brought you up out of the land of slavery. I.e., in other words, when prosperity comes, you haven't had much of that. You start to taste it and then you get used to it. You will you will be tempted to start to think that you've earned this. That it's your doing, that you deserved it, that you're so great, and you will start to just sort of take it for granted. You will become spoiled and you will be entitled. Sound familiar? This is just human nature 101. And God knows it, of course. And Moses is warning them this is what we're like. This is what we will. How quickly all this will just go right into the history books forgotten. How it all got here. How it was achieved. Who allowed it to happen? Who brought us through? And who first, who got God who did it? And then secondly, the people who paid the price to get us here. People who didn't have it so good. Why did Jesus say that it was so hard for a rich guy? To enter the kingdom. Why did he say that? It's so hard, he said, for the rich man. Here's a hint. It's not the fault of the man's material goods. There's no guilt laid on the, on the inanimate goods. It's not the fault of the wealth. It's the fault of the man because of the wealth and how he responds to the wealth. So it's... it's it's not, in other words, it's, the problem is not with his money, it's with his mind. And so the heart of the people, it's not, oh, it's, if God thought it was terrible to have flocks and herds and good things, he wouldn't have given it to them. 
So it's good. He, he's not, he was not withholding it. He's giving them these things, but he just knows what that's going to do. As Jesus says, he, he says, Jesus knew what was in man. God always knows what's in you. He knows what we're like. He, he's the good physician. He's also the expert psychologist. Prosperity preachers, among their many problems, is they tend to imply that, you know, in, in, their, in their prosperity gospel, in their prosperity preaching, they tend to imply that everybody hearing them, you know, gaining more wealth and, you know, getting all the money they want, and also just, you know, not having any illnesses. And they, they, they sort of preach as if if that happens, that's the goal. And if we can get that to happen, that will make us all godlier and more sanctified and a stronger church. And man, once we all get the money that once God pours out, opens up the windows of heaven and pours out the blessings on us. And it all comes down to our, and we got more money than we know what to do with. And he speaks that increase. And once that happens, the implication of their preaching is, then we're going to go out and change the world. That's when it will finally happen. That's when the Great Commission will take off. We'll see revival around the world on account of all that blessing. The Bible seems to suggest, if anything, the opposite. It seems to suggest, if anything, the opposite. So in uh, 1786, John Wesley wrote this tract entitled Thoughts Upon Methodism. Because he had seen this movement of his take off. And he had seen it be wildly successful in terms of spiritual renewal and revival. These groups were growing and someone had stuck the name Methodist to it, which wasn't intended to be not, it wasn't intended to be some kind of compliment, um, but it stuck, so he just owned it. <laughs> and he writes, he just gives his thoughts on it, you know? And he had seen all of this take hold, and he had seen all these blessings poured out, and what had happened is in all these towns and places, you know, people, there were great stories, you can well imagine. You read about it, all these people in these English towns and cities would be delivered from all this bondage, the chains of, you know, their chronic alcoholism and stuff. And God would straighten out their lives and their priorities and their goals. And what what you would find is people would get their stuff together and they would work harder. They would be wiser. They would have a right view of of money and relationship. And everything would start to work out much better. That's what happens. And all kinds of success follows that. That caused Wesley to write this. Quote, I fear wherever riches have increased, the essence of religion, which is the mind of Christ, has decreased in that same proportion. Therefore, do I not see how it is possible for any revival of true religion to continue long? For true religion must necessarily produce both industry and frugality. And these cannot but produce riches. And as riches increase, so does pride, anger, the love of the world in all of its branches. 
He was wise enough and a Bible reader, and he understood that there's this unfortunate cycle that we could see. A generation has a tough time of it, you know, sort of comes up hard, deals with all these things. They make their way through the desert. And then, you know, with God's help, they establish roots in the words of God. They start to live the good life. They see blessings happen. The next generation enjoys that prosperity that comes from it, but is tempted, immediately tempted, really, to start to forget how it all got to be that way, to forget God who gave it and to forget the price that was paid and the faithfulness of the people that came before them that helped bring that about. This French sociologist Jacques Ellul wrote about this cycle. He's observed it many, many times in societies where he says Christian values would permeate the society and become widely instilled in the population, which would lead to all of these benefits from a sociological perspective. It would lead to great benefits. And this would result in success. Stronger households and harder workers and wiser people and you know, they, they cannot help but, but prosper to some extent. But he says the result of all of that success then in this cycle, he observed, would, would start to bring on other values that were contrary to the original values that led to it. And the beginning of a degradation of that society would start to happen. Again, that sound like real, you know, foreign and strange to anybody here. I know I've quoted this before because it, it, it sums it up so well and I love it, but it's the old Puritan, the great Puritan minister who was, a, who was one, of the, one of the cutting edge doctors, really, physicians of his age and a prolific writer named Cotton Mather, who was a, who was a great enough guy that, you know, someone really does need to consider Cotton as a name for, uh, for, one, of their, for one of their boys. Just... I just throw it out there sometimes. I like to commend certain names to you. So Cotton Mather. And uh, look here what he says. It's brief, but he puts all this very succinctly when he says. He tells the story. He says, Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. What he means by religion, of course, in this old quaint puritanical way of saying is, these were very devout Christian people who came across those waters. And those early settlers, they had a hard life. I mean, it was some hard scrabble, as they would say. You know, it was tough living. Read about those guys sometime. I mean, sort of, you know, the there's a romanticized understanding of it from you know Thanksgiving imagery, when they're all like clean and healthy and strong and vibrant and and you know perfectly basted turkeys come out of their ovens and you know they all sit down. Uh, life was rough for the early settlers. But a few generations in, it wasn't so rough anymore. And people could enjoy it. And guess what? They weren't quite as puritanical once life got nicer and easier. All, that, all those austere ways, all that devoutness, they start to go, eh, who needs that? Time to live, baby. And what Mather noticed is, you know, all that hard work brought on brought on blessings that showered on us to make a life here. And, and life then, 
So it was a little easier as generations go, but it got so easy that now the original the original sacrifices are hardly even known, and certainly no one's ready for, to make those sacrifices anymore. Last year there was a book by a writer named Ross Douthit. He writes for the New York Times. He's one of the very few, uh, one of the very few conservative writers. I believe he's Roman Catholic. Uh, but I'll show you this book. Here's the cover of it anyway. Very timely message here. The book was entitled, this is just released last year, The Decadent Society. How we became victims of our own success. You know what decadent means? Nobody uses that word really anymore. It's from old French. Here's your dictionary definition. Decadent means in a state of moral and cultural decline. Characterized by a decay in personal honor, discipline, and excellence, and an addiction to luxuries. That's what decadent means. There's a Christian philosopher that I've always, for years, I've, I've loved this guy's writing. His name is J.P. Moreland. And he wrote another book a few years back where he talked about, he talked about what he called empty cells, sort of a a term he would use to describe what he sees as this problem of, if we're not careful, what we see today, empty self. What is an empty self as he was as he was describing it? Well, I'll read to you a little bit of how he described. Here's what Moreland said are characteristics in his mind of an empty self from that book. He had these different characteristics. He said, for one thing, he said it. He said, an em- the empty self is inordinately individualistic. Uh, everyone does everything for, for personal reasons only, really. He says, the, the empty self is narcissistic. You know what that means? Like sort of self-absorbed, right? Narcissus was the, uh, was the Greek guy that caught his reflection in the, in the waters of the lake and fell in love. That is a devastatingly handsome man right there. Yeah, self over self-absorption. Um, he says, uh, Moreland says about this, he says, the narcissist evaluates everything, the local church, the right books to read, and all other practices evaluates them on the basis of what is worthy of their time in terms of what will further their happiness and, and, that and their agenda. And everything is just sort of a tool. Everything is an instrument to facilitate that. He says the empty self is infantile. This is a tough quote right here, but he says, quote, created by a culture filled with pop psychology, schools, and media that usurp parental authority, and advertising that seems to treat everyone like a teenager, the infantile part of the empty self needs instant gratification, comfort, and soothing. The infantile person is controlled by infantile cravings and constantly seeks to be filled up and made whole by food, entertainment, and consumer goods. Such a person is preoccupied with sex, physical appearance, body image, tends to live by feelings and experiences. For the infantile type, pain, endurance, hard work, and delayed gratification are anathema. Pleasure is what matters, and it needs to be immediate. Boredom is the greatest evil. And amusement is the greatest good. The empty self, he says, is passive. It doesn't really, it's not really proactive in the world 
sort of lets the world happen, lets the world wash over, partly because of entertainment, because we're just mostly watching other people's lives. We're sort of watching so much entertainment, you spend watching a lot of people compete in sports and you never actually go out and physically do any of it. You watch the lives of other people on like 16,000 different shows that you're streaming at once, but but there's their lives, their fictionalized lives. You hardly have one of your own. He says, um, the widespread passivity of the empty self explains the proliferation of so much reading in various magazines and and an over-identification with sports teams and figures. Passive people do not have lives of their own. They must live vicariously through the lives of others, whether it's online or through entertainment. Celebrities become the codependent enablers of the passive lifestyle. The passive empty self is a spiritual life support system. He says the empty self is sensate. What does he mean by that? <clears throat> this is in a sensate culture. People believe only in the reality of the physical universe capable of being experienced with the senses. A sensate culture is secular. It is this worldly. It's empirical. So that the reality of God, the soul, immaterial beings, values, purposes, abstract objects, they're not that important. A sensate culture will eventually disintegrate because it lacks the intellectual resources necessary to sustain a public and private life conducive of corporate and individual human flourishing. This, this kind of culture has caused us to be a shallow, small-souled people. He says the empty self has lost the art of, in, of developing an interior life. The self used to be defined in terms of internal traits of virtue and morality, the successful person. The person of honor and reputation was the person with a deep character. In this view, the cultivation of an interior life through intellectual reflection, spiritual formation, was of critical importance. But in the last few decades, the self has come to be defined in terms of external factors. The ability to project a pleasurable, powerful personality and the possession of consumer goods. The quest for celebrity status, image, pleasure and power has become the preoccupation of a self that is defined this way. The careful development of an inner life is simply irrelevant to this kind of view. And finally, he says that the empty self is harried and busy. Quote, because the empty self has a deep emotional emptiness and hunger, because it has devised inadequate strategies to fill that emptiness, a frenzied pace of life emerges to keep the pain and emptiness suppressed. One must jump from one activity to another and not be exposed to quietness for very long, or the emptiness will become apparent. Such a lifestyle creates a deep sense of fatigue in which passivity takes over. And fatigued people either do not have the energy to read or understand. When they do, they will choose undemanding material. Undemanding material. It's a harsh judgment, what he says, but sometimes, just like the people needed the prophets and the whole message of the prophets, sometimes we need a little bit of modern-day prophetic word speaking right to us as we are to remind us Notice the word reminding. Isn't that what that whole passage is? How much of the Bible is just saying, be reminded, make sure you don't forget? There are a lot of Americans today who have no real concept of just how good life is for them. 
and and it is an ill condition. And part of that ill condition is to sort of complain repetitively that you have it so bad. And I kind of wonder if on a day like a Memorial Day that's even called that, that's pointed in that way, that that I, I wonder if people still even have a concept of just sort of like how the road to all this prosperity was paved. And it, it is a difficult, it is, you know, we, we can lose patience if we're not careful. And we're guilty of it sometimes ourselves, all of us. But you can lose patience. There are a lot of complaints coming forth from people who drove to the place where they're complaining in a very nice car, who hold in their hand the latest phone as they make their complaints, who are wearing very nice clothes. Uh, you know, they're adorned pretty well while they make their complaints. And they're fresh off a pretty nice meal at, at one of about a thousand places they could have chosen to eat at because basically they can eat almost any type of food they want any time of day. But they will still complain. This is just what we're like. We're no different than Israel was. And Israel was no different than we are now. If we are stricken with some hardships, and you never know what's around the corner, could life turn hard for us? Life could turn pretty hard for us. And then you will see. Then people will get spiritual. The, heart, the more urgent their, their lives are threatened. Start to take away the good things, the comforts. People will start to scramble for foundations. Right on down to, you know, it's, it's the most basic thing. No atheists in the foxholes. And, you know, if you listen to people, on a Memorial Day, you could listen to people who have been, who have been in the most, uh, who have been in the deadliest, most threatening situations. And most of them will, the very few of them will, will talk like atheists. The old uh, poet William Trapp said, He who cannot pray, let him go to sea or to war. And there he will learn. There he will learn. You'll get scared enough. You'll see the fragility of your life enough. You'll understand that, uh, that all the comforts and all your money, it can do no good. Remember the, remember the rich man? When he builds all of his, Jesus says he builds all that stuff up. And God says, you're an idiot. Tonight, tonight you will be you will be dispossessed of those items. You will be uh, divested of those assets. And then it says, then who will get your stuff? You could collect all the comforts and goods that you want to, but somebody's going to read that stuff off on a will before you know it. What are you going to do with all the stuff you collect? Your grandkids going to carry it home in hefty bags someday? Try to figure out what to do with it all. It's very fleeting. The comforts and goods of this life, they can just lull us like a drug. And we will forget. We will forget what it's like. That's why the Bible emphasizes remembering all the time. It says you should be doing Memorial Day regularly. That's why you don't neglect the gathering. Somebody said one time, we, we all have got to be in church and in Bible studies simply for the fact that we forget stuff. We forget. We're like James... The book of James, you know, he says you, you're like a man, you hear the word, you forget the word. You look in a mirror, right? You walk away from the mirror. Just like that, you forgot who you are. The great Bible scholar, David Horner, he said, our gravitational pull, our natural gravitational pull is toward forgetting stuff. 
God's people, he says, are always in danger of losing their memory, forgetting who they are. On a national level, I think this has been clear. Nationally, the population generally does just... We, we don't understand our, the identity of, of the nation really anymore. It's a real identity crisis. And the reason you get an identity crisis is you forgot. You don't know. Because the tendency today is the past is the past. It doesn't matter. Who cares? It's irrelevant. And they didn't know anything anyway. We know everything. And, and what they did think they knew, they must have just been wrong about it. They must have all been wrong, immoral, evil, terrible people. We have come along now, and we have fixed it, and we are better. And the parts of history we don't really care for, we can sort of creatively just rewrite. We'll rewrite it, we'll tweak it, and then we'll send it into the school system, and we'll start feeding it to our kids. Redacted histories sort of make us look better. This will cause identity crisis. You just won't know who you are. Like there's a movie years ago that was kind of ingenious in the plot. It was about a guy who had this condition where every morning he woke up, he forgot everything. Now, some of you feel that way, don't you? <laughs> some mornings I wake up, I'm like, wait a minute, where am I? What in the world? What day is this? Every once in a while, it gets so weird. I wake up and think, it's summer, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's summertime. <laughs> okay. And it's like my dad used to say, you know, boy, you, you're like a baby duck. You wake up in a new world every single day. Forgot everything you, you had before. But the guy in this movie literally had a condition where every morning he had forgotten everything. So you know what he did? Like Dave was telling me earlier, he takes pictures of stuff and puts them up. Didn't you say that earlier? Where that, you know, I have to do that. I've, I keep notes on my phone where I, where I put stuff because I forget where I put it. Stuff I paid good money for that I need in a time of crisis. Tools that are important. And when I need that tool, I run all over the property looking for it. I paid good money for that tool. I don't know where I stuck it. See, so the man in that story, you know, he would take pictures of people. He'd take Polaroids. You guys remember Polaroids? It comes out. Looking around. He would take Polaroids of every person he met. And he would write a note to himself. Who it is. And he would, he would give clues to himself. He'd write things like, don't trust this person. And the next morning when he woke up, he'd look, he'd be looking. If he met, you'd see his pictures. Oh, okay, you know. James says that's what we can be like in some ways. It's amazing how quickly we forget. We forget. We forget all the good things you enjoy. You forget that God brings you through these things. Where did God find you once upon a time, maybe? I bet you you could tell some stories in here. I bet you were, some of you have been found in some pretty rotten places. And you might he might have left you where he found you. But he didn't. But don't forget it. Don't forget it. Don't forget any of it. That's why we do these things. We The Bible emphasizes it. It told the people of Israel, remember, recite this Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Don't say it a lot. Do those feasts and those holidays. Tell the stories when you do. Bind it on your forehead. Talk about it when you're coming in, when you're going out. Make sure the next generation gets it drilled into them really good. Jesus told his followers, partake of this meal. Remember my body broken. Remember my bloodshed. Don't forget it. It'd be easy to forget it. You turn into a country club. Why are we here? Why do we gather? Why do we do all this? Why do we have a budget and a building and do all that? I forgot. I can't remember. It was pretty important, I think. Why we recite things. We recite the greatest commandment. We recite... The Great Commission. We recite the Apostles' Creed. We recite our purpose statement that we have. We're always doing that. 
Not, not, not because we're droning on like we're in a cult, say these words together with me. It's sort of like we're just, I just got to get back to ground zero. You should do it in the morning. Okay, here's why I'm here. Here's why God has left me alive on planet Earth. Here's what he needs from me. Here's what I have pledged to do. I've made some commitments. i got to follow through. Here's what I shouldn't be doing. Here's something I should avoid. I just got to remember. Or I'll be like that guy. I'll just go wandering out into the world. Off, to, off I go. And then next thing you know, I'm, I'm thinking stupid ways. I'm believing stupid things. I'm playing stupid games and winning stupid prizes. Next thing I know, that's how I'm living. Because I just forgot. Because I'm like, we're, we're, we're sort of like children like that. Just forget. So it's a matter of habit. It's a matter of practice. The nation does it to try to remember things. So the nation will think about it this weekend. They may not think about it much. Beyond that, I don't know. But the, at least maybe some of them in between, in between swilling beers on the back of their boat, they might stop and think, you know, the fact that I've got a boat and I can just recreate like this, and I'm and I'm living and I'm living a free life in a free country. How'd that happen? Might want to stop and remember how that happened. Almost nothing good happens without somebody paying for it. And sometimes the payment is blood. And we of all people understand that. We understand that better than anybody. Because we are founded on that. We are the the entire centerpiece of our entire message is someone pays with blood. To purchase someone's freedom. That's our entire gospel message, is it not? So, yes, greater love hath no one than what? To lay your life down. And so, within the church, as even as within the, na- the nation and other nations too, and in generationally in so many different contexts, and maybe even for you, maybe even in your family, you know, sometimes... Somebody will achieve greatness and get to the top of their profession or their sport or wherever. And sometimes they'll stop and remember and reflect for a minute and they'll say, you know, I wouldn't be here if mama hadn't worked three jobs. Somebody, somebody paid to give me the goods, you know. And so like Israel, you and I, We've got to remember to remember.